So the Greater Seattle Business Association is doing this Design to Doors Open event. And I'm going to be there. Uh, Chris Parker is going to be there from Gordon Bellum. And we're going to be doing this thing where we talk to some small business owners and give them an idea of what it's like to open their first space. What are some of the things that can be crazy surprises that a, a new brick and mortar business owner might not know? Are, are you going to help reveal some of these secrets? Like, are there already bathrooms in this space? That's a good one. Can people go to the bathroom in my space? Do any people need to go to the bathroom in my space? <laughs> Is there uh, someone particular that they should go to the bathroom in fact, it's in funny you should mention bathrooms because I feel like that's becoming stranger and stranger. I go to so many restaurants and shops in Seattle. And first of all, obviously, you need a code now for every bathroom. But then it's like, oh, yeah, go down this hall, then make a right, then go down the stairs, then slide down the fireman's pole, then, you know, take a Tough mutter challenge, you know, 800 feet, then the bathroom will be on the right. Then remember this code. Yeah, and you had to remember that whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you're repeating it to yourself, but you have to pee, exactly and it's like, okay, take a right, then left. And then you're just like, you end up down some weird loading dock, and you're just lost. Yeah, it is you feel like you're not boring. supposed to be there. Yeah, and I'm not sure how that happens happened exactly but that's become a thing mm -hmm. and I bet a lot of people would rather not do that and I mean did you remember that code after you had two no, drinks already of course not you end up just standing outside the door praying for someone to, to come, come out, out so you can <laughs> hold it open it's so real that struggle is so real and then there's like three different restaurants and bars and coffee shops all dumping into the same bathroom not cool mm -mm. So we will cover that. If you're interested in knowing why it takes eight minutes to get to the bathroom in any new commercial space, <laughs> come time the doors open. <laughs> That's the doors we're talking about. Uh, yeah, the doors to the doors. bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> the Design to Doors Open event is on Thursday, January 30th at the GSBA headquarters at 400 East Pine Street. For more information, go to thegsba.org slash events. This is Charles. And this is Rachel. From BNV Radio. This is Design Goggles. Downtown Seattle has skyscrapers, unique cultures and nightlife, and dramatic views both to and from Puget Sound. At first glance, you might think it's just like any other city center in the U.S., but you would be wrong. To many, there are two Seattles, the concrete and glass canyons of the urban center, and the collage of single-family neighborhoods that make up a majority of Seattle, the most of any city in the country. This duality continues to result in two civic identities, oftentimes at odds with each other. The design community in Seattle and others across the country are attempting to resolve their civic present with their urban future. It's up to designers, planners, and civic leaders to listen to communities and shape the city to serve its people. What does that mean when some see downtown Seattle as a response to tourism and the bridge and ferry crowd? How do we develop and preserve Seattle's unique nightlife along with the exponentially growing transportation demands? More importantly, how do we retain the natural beauty of our city and still, literally, reach for the sky with the office spaces of the future? To help us answer those questions and more, we are joined by Don Blakeney, a VP at the Downtown Seattle Association. Don, thank you for making time to sit and chat with us. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Did you grow up in Seattle? I did. I grew up here in northeast Seattle and uh, 
spent my childhood running around that area. I didn't spend a lot of time in downtown so much later in my life. So but. you didn't imagine you would be advocating for downtown development? and No, not at all. In fact, it wasn't until I missed a job interview because traffic. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't. It took me an hour to get from Northeast Seattle to downtown because of a oh, University no. of Washington graduation. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in my car 30 minutes late to this mm-hmm. job interview. And I remember just saying, there must be a better <laughs> way. I will do something about this in my life. Was and, that a job in architecture? No, it wasn't. It was actually a job to teach ballroom dancing in Belltown. And no I ended way. up getting the job anyway <laughs> for two years. Not, I was a professional. Was no, it's okay. It's a, you but ever, you were trained as an architect? Did I? Nope. No, uh, not at all. I went to school for planning and, uh, and public okay. administration. I so see. Okay. I had a few careers. I managed like a political campaign, worked in the marketing department of Washington Mutual, and spent most of my time thinking and looking at city politics and planning stuff. And so I said, okay, I got to get out of this and go back mm-hmm. and focus on that. So that's why I moved to New York City for a while and oh, went cool. to school. When did you there. live in New York? From 2003 to 2009. We overlapped. I was there okay. from 01 to 09. Cool. Saw very much the same period of time. Have you been back? Yes, all the time. All the time? Gonna, I'll be back in a few weeks. So it is fascinating. One of these days, actually, I want to do a show just comparing the different kinds of urban evolution. Because New York is a city that's constantly, like, change is the only constant. And I feel like Seattle has a different relationship with change on Mm -hmm. an urban scale. Speaking of which, what was it like observing growing up here and being trained in planning? What was it like observing the changes in Seattle's evolution when South Lake Union was developed and tech became more of a downtown thing in Seattle because it used to be kind of like Microsoft is over there across the lake. Right. It was a very foreign idea. And some of that downtown South Lake Union stuff was starting to happen while I was living in New York. So I can't really say I watched that. But I remember leaving Seattle remembering there was like, you know, the Hurricane Cafe and, you know, one story industrial. Um, I remember being around for the vote on the park, not park. I mean, the Paul Allen idea of a a commons, which would have been very cool, but also like kind of dropping it into the middle of like an industrial area. So how does that activate as someone who now thinks about how to activate parks? Uh, how do you deal with a big space like that? Right. That was the, and I only know this story secondhand, so I can't tell it, but the Lesser Seattle Association or something <laughs> was like the group that fought against. Right. The, I, don't, I don't remember that part of it, <laughs> but I was, I was a little bit young. But I do remember listening to some of my friends who are more politically engaged then. Mm-hmm. That it was also the same time they were voting for the Mariners Stadium. Oh, and, interesting. And that brought out a crowd of people who were not Super Park people. Right. And so the people who were turned out and targeted for all of the money that went into that vote mm-hmm. actually did the service. And so it helped turn the vote the other way on the park. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Again, like I, there's someone else who knows a lot more about that than I am. It's not me, but... <laughs> yeah, we got to find that person. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that one of the most fascinating Seattle stories. It, How an advocacy group rose to fight against a giant park being built and instead it led to a huge office development, mm-hmm. which is usually the opposite of how those things go in city I, centers. I will not give that land. I will actually <laughs> yes. I will develop that land and uh, do something different. I think there was a natural, I, I remember some of the dialogue in Seattle, a little skepticism about what's one person's idea able to kind of like forge their will on Seattle. And mm-hmm. I think um, there was people who are naturally skeptical about that, that. Seattle's politics are like that, where you're kind of skeptical about, you know, stuff in general. You know, it's interesting to see, like, what that whole area has become and all the jobs and opportunity and now housing is going in there and Mm -hmm. it's becoming a neighborhood where people live and want to have their family and... It's an area that was not really providing much in the way of beyond, like, the first story. Right. And now it's providing 30, 40 stories. For sure. I know since I moved here, I've observed in the last, because I've been here for four years now, definitely observed that from my perspective, it seems like there are two separate identities to the city. There are conversations about downtown Seattle. And then there are conversations about the single family zoning of Seattle, which is nearly the rest of the footprint of the city. 
which was new to me coming from the East Coast where city ends and in some cases it's still extremely urban even when it crosses over into what is technically a suburb. Whereas here in Seattle, single family zoning starts way before you get to something that's considered downtown core. Is that a perspective that the Downtown Association considers often? I mean, the question I would ask first before we get into that question, which is a good one, is what do you consider to be downtown? That's a great question. (laughs) Uh, And and the reason I ask it is because we consider when we do all our data crunching Mm -hmm. and look at like the number of people who live downtown, we look at like half of Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. We look all the way up to the bottom of Queen Anne. We look up to Lake Union. We look all the way down to Soto, including Mm -hmm. like the first chunk of Soto Mm -hmm. and kind of like hug the freeway for a bunch of that. We also look at First Hill. So, I mean, we consider all that. At, like the downtown. Sometimes when I ask people that question, they say, oh, you know, that probably like Madison to, you know, I mean, they, they right. think of like where the biggest towers are and that's mm-hmm. downtown. And so it just, it kind of depends on how you think about it. And I think what, when we think about it, we think about it, it's the urban core that's well accessible by transit and it's walkable and it's kind of where the energy is right now. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's hundred percent fair. And I think a lot of people think of the tall buildings mm-hmm. when they're at a distance and point at it and say there's downtown Seattle, regardless Mm -hmm. of its actual footprint. But that's an interesting distinction you're making. And so if you look at our definition of downtown, which is not, I mean, in some respects it's arbitrary, but in some respects it kind of speaks to the different communities there. We have about 12 different communities within downtown. It includes Pioneer Square, Soto, Chinatown International District, mm-hmm. First Hill, the Retail Core, Belltown, West Edge, South Lake mm-hmm. Union, and mm-hmm. uh, Lower Queen Anne, uh, right. Uptown. And so if you think about those different neighborhoods, they all have their own personalities and they're all kind of within this area that kind of operates in a similar sphere of, of, right. of different types of activities. More and more over the years, those have become communities that expect different things to happen. So like what used to be a nine to five, you know, get on your bus and go home or drive home probably um, has now (laughs) has now become a place where you go and now you walk out of your office and you expect to be able to go shopping for dinner. And then you expect to meet your partner or friend out for dinner and then be able to walk back home. And so your your experience is and what you need out of an area like that is very different now. When I was a kid, you asked about growing up here. You get kind of out of downtown by 5 p.m. And now mm-hmm. it's like people expect to be able to hang out down there and it should be safe and it should be accessible. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, actually, is has the percentage of people who are living downtown grown or has it stayed constant? Yeah, I mean, we're going to crack 100,000 people in that boundary I just talked about, mm-hmm. which is a lot. Of, it's like one eighth of Seattle's population. Wow. And That's really um, interesting. Or sorry, one-tenth of Seattle's population because we're about 800,000 people, I imagine, in the next census. So it's more and more people are moving down there. Um, I think it's hard to kind of put your finger on where those people are moving into, but these towers go in. And and also Mm -hmm. we're tearing down single-family homes, like you mentioned, to put in like fourplexes or a series of houses to put in or smaller buildings to put in larger buildings. So we're doing some of that infill. I have read there's a lot of anxiety surrounding the sheer amount of office space owned by only a few companies. And this is something I know only from reading. You guys actually might have, both of you, you and Rachel might have a better perspective on when Boeing moved and the sort of shock of that. Does that play a role in some of the political discussions that surround how many towers are we going to build, how much office space is really right for downtown? And, you know, that affects the residential numbers also. This is a huge question that's almost not fair to ask. What is the identity of downtown Seattle? Wait, what? <laughs> Let me pick a question no, here. So, I mean, like, uh, I would maybe challenge that, like, the office buildings are all owned by, like, a few folks. I, I feel like there is quite a bit of diversity in our office space 
and who's the tenants and the mm-hmm. owners. And there's quite a bit of demand. I think I would just start by saying Seattle is full of smart people and mm-hmm. companies have realized that and they realize they can poach people from big companies sure. with smart people. And sure. we've seen that there's actually quite a pipeline in that regard. And so sure. startups, smaller companies, even like big companies that just want to have a satellite office, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Facebook, Google, Apple, have all kind of started waking up to Seattle as a place where we can actually get really great talent. Right. So the, the demand for office space kind of comes from that centrifugal force that's been created by Microsoft and others over the years and has really grown. And, and, and then I think response to the idea that not everybody wants to live in Redmond, however great the east side is. You know, people do want an urban experience, even if it's not in downtown, it might be like in uh, Wallingford, mm-hmm. but they want to live closer to where they work and, and be able to be in a city. Mm-hmm. And so, like you said, the housing and the jobs are tied together. And so we have to plan for that. Mm-hmm. And that if it's not going to be to build housing, then it needs to be able to build really, really accessible transit so people right. can get to and from where they need to work. The, uh, the housing, we do need to build more of it. And there has been a big boom in job growth. But, you know, how do we target where we put that housing so that it's near transit and it's taking advantage of our urban villages like Ballard and mm-hmm. Capitol Hill and First Hill and Queen Anne and maybe some areas that we haven't thought about, like Interbay. Like, what's the future of Interbay? Like, is it's going to be on a light rail station. Is there housing that gets to go there? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things that have to be figured out. But, like, mm-hmm. as we look at our scarce land, you know, 63% of it or whatever, I think, was devoted to single-family housing. Mm-hmm. Probably not sustainable for a city that's growing as fast as we are. So how do we do that without like just, you know, blankly saying that that's not a thing we want anymore? Like, how do we take advantage of the nodes that we already have? Mm-hmm. Right. There is a statistic I read, though, and it may or may not still be true, but something around 40 percent of all office space in downtown Seattle being owned by Amazon. Is that true? And I'm not an pro or anti-Amazon person. It's just an interesting statistic. It would depend on the boundary. And yeah. I don't have that exact number, but they have built a lot of office space. Yeah. And, and some of it was built by other people and then they've purchased it too. Right, right. Um, and they have, I forget the total number of employees, but it's a lot. Yeah. But they are building on the east side too. So, I mean, I think that they're looking 100%. to go that direction also. Yeah. So it won't be a Seattle only thing. Right. But I mean, if you look at like some of the brand new buildings going to South Lake Union, Google, Facebook, mm-hmm. other uh, investments. So it's, it's not just the Amazon store, although there are the major for sure. Uh, one of the reasons they come to mind is that something we, I mean, now it's older news, but something we talked about a lot in the design community were the spheres. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, they're this incredibly exciting thing that were built, these biospheres and lush, exotic greenery inside. And it's a huge feat of both architecture and landscape architecture. Yeah. But then the fact that these are not really public spaces and there is a duality between these incredible things being built mm-hmm. and the public really getting access to them. Now it seems like that now that the the viaduct has just been torn down, which is a huge thing. If you're a listener and you're not from Seattle, this is a big, big deal. This huge (laughs) concrete elevated highway that was literally along Puget Sound was torn down and there's these incredible views now. So now it feels like there is a lot more public space that's being talked about. Mm -hmm. But that seems like it's also a little bit of a point of tension, Mm -hmm. not just in our city either, in New York with the High Line starting to be privatized and things. That's a How is it privatized? The end of the High Line. Uh, this is a fa- famous building by Bjark Ingels. The High Line was continued into and up a skyscraper. Hmm. And the skyscraper was kept private. Hmm. And there is another architectural thing that was built there. I don't know the official name of it. People joke about it, call it the artichoke. It's private. Uh, it's it's the public cone, yeah. right now. 
but it's actually going to become private. It was built as an amenity to a nearby residential mm -hmm. building. Mm -hmm. But these are the kinds of conversations that sure. are starting in many downtown areas. And so I'm just curious to hear your take on making sure public space and public architecture is built in downtown versus things yeah. that are only accessible by companies. No, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, so if you think about the property that those spheres are on, right, like it's uh, it's private property. It was I think it was probably owned by another organization first. When they built that, they built these office buildings, but because of zoning and incentives, they created this kind of in-between space. I'm thinking of the one next to the spheres where you have the, the steps going through in the banana stand, and it's between 6th and 7th, and it's kind of near the uh, Amazon Go store and all of that. It's, it, steps. So there's like some, there's some artwork, and you walk through, and there's like a covered bridge. And yeah. It's oh, near, okay. It's, yeah, near, yeah. it's mm -hmm. near like the, I forget the, yeah. the name of the building. I but, know what you're talking about. But that all is publicly accessible. You can walk and get a free banana from Amazon. <laughs> uh, but technically, if they were like, we're concerned about safety, they could shut that. It's private property. And I think mm -hmm. there's probably some agreement with the city about what the access has to be. But like, it's not public land. And it never was before Amazon. It was a, probably a parking lot, which was, you know, same kind of rules apply there. But this in general is kind of a de facto public space for, for folks to enjoy. The spheres, I, I always thought of as an office building, like kind of a, like a conference room for that mm -hmm. matter. Like it's a big jungle conference room for all the employees and you can take a tour if you schedule something, right? So mm -hmm. I never thought of those spheres as a public space. In fact, I've personally never been inside them. I've only, you know, right. <laughs> but, but I've only been inside the two restaurants and there's a restaurant and a bar. Yes. And those are amazing. And I go there all the time because they're super close to my office mm -hmm. and beautifully designed. Mm -hmm. And they're the public facing part where if, like, you have to buy lunch. But And that's Deep Dive. And what's the, the restaurant is uh, Renee Ghost. Erickson, right? Yeah. Yep. I don't know if she does the restaurant, but she definitely does the deep dive. And oh, no, I know. Yeah. Her sea creatures both designed and, and yeah. built the, the restaurant as well. For those of you who are listening and are coming to Seattle, like that's, that's <laughs> definitely the, go there. The yeah. number one bar you should see <laughs> For here. Sure. It is stunning. And and it's really great hospitality down there. But um, and when you're in there, you see none of the spheres. You're just in this hole in the middle of the ground. But it's kind of fun to know you're underneath the spheres. And I feel like so to that extent, there's a little bit of penetration from a day to day public situation. The deep dive is very popular, so it's hard to get in there. But the Wilmot's Ghost is a little bit more right. accessible. Mm -hmm. I just say that is like those buildings are still office buildings in my mind, right. but they, they look and act a bit differently. But getting back to your question about public space and the waterfront, I think we do need more public space in downtown Seattle. And these conversations about lidding I-5 or providing waterfront space are really needed. If you think about how much public space Seattle has, it's very, very little in downtown compared to yeah. the rest of the city. Discovery Park and a few other places like really carry the weight of our like park to person ratio that like, you know, we kind of cling to as a city. Mm -hmm. But when you kind of cut those out and you look at just the center city, we did some work with the Office of Planning and Community Development and SDOT, Sound Transit, King County Metro, looking at like public space and transit. And like we, when we did our analysis, it was just very little. And so right. mm -hmm. SDOT, the Seattle Department of Transportation, is looking at how do we use our street right of way to create more places for people. And so you're not creating a big park, but you're maybe doing something like Bell Street where in Belltown, you've created this space that's more flexible and you can open and close it and it's public, but it's easier to program than like a major thoroughfare where there's cars always whizzing in and you have to get right. a permit to close the street. This is a little bit more different. So right. just thinking about public space through new ways we can kind of claim it. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a park, but maybe it's um, wider sidewalks. Maybe it's like pedestrian plazas, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, in New York, they're closing off Broadway. Yeah. With a long-term goal of entirely being a green space. I was working in the Times Square Alliance when they came oh, through cool. and they we, we were fighting for literally like, a foot of sidewalk because mm -hmm. we were counting people getting hit by cars and it was just way too high. <laughs> and I mean, people were walking through the street and then they get hit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people, not everybody's in their full faculties when they're walking around New York City. And so, <laughs> I don't know what you're I, talking about. I don't know. <laughs> and I'm not talking about Elmo either. But they came in and they said, we really, Jeanette Sadat Khan was 
the head of the Department of Transportation, and she came in and said, what if we close Broadway to cars in certain areas mm -hmm. and really try to figure out if that would actually help the flow of cars and make people feel safer? Are you involved in the Lit I-5 project at all? Um, I'm not on the committee at okay. all, but like we are tracking. And I think um, our organization has a – my boss, John, is sitting on the committee. Liz Dunn, who's a Capitol Hill. Yeah, sure. Uh, she's a big yeah. name. And so she's on our board at the DSA. And they came in and actually presented an update on their feasibility study just this week to our organization. Oh, cool. What yeah. can you tell us? Um, <laughs> it sounds like it's coming coming along. But, uh, That's cool. Yeah, exactly. Because I know I heard an engineering firm was chosen and there were several architects on the on the jury. That's all I heard. Oh, okay. yeah, so I'm just – I'm so curious as to about – because I feel like that is, and I don't know, since we don't have a whole lot of knowledge on it, to me, one of the most exciting projects in the city in terms of its potential. Mm -hmm. But in Boston, they built over the highway and then just built more buildings, <laughs> which is fine, I suppose, but there's little potential there. It seems like if that becomes a public space in any way, it could be one of the most significant changes to the city. Well, if you think about like the land equation, right, like the cost of land versus the cost of creating land. It seems like there's an equation there where you can actually build land for cheaper than you could than otherwise buy it and then build. Mm -hmm. oh, was that true with the lid? And that's what they're saying. Wow. There's like their thought on the cost per square foot, at least four years ago when they started this conversation, was like $500 a square foot for cost to build. And then the costs to buy is becoming like closer to $1,000 a square foot. So it's like... Now, this is actually a very competitive, and again, like they're doing this whole feasibility study to figure that out, so I don't know what their numbers are now, but the idea that you could actually maybe build some buildings and then recoup some of the other money to pay for the public space. So maybe there's an opportunity to do both. Uh, DC mm -hmm. is a real cramped for development space because they have height limits. Uh, you can't be taller than, I think, the Washington Monument. It's kind of an East Coast, Southern thing. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it can't be taller than the steeple. But here, we don't have that issue. So I'm wondering if maybe there's kind of a mix of... Uh, in D.C., when they covered their freeway, they just did all buildings, I believe. And so, uh -huh. like Dallas, they're doing a Clydeborn Park, so it's this public space. But yeah. ours is much more complicated. It's on a hill, and the freeway is not, like, you know, sunken. It's actually mm -hmm. above ground. And so how do we how do we yeah. um, deal with all that? You know, the D.C. things, so I lived in D.C. for five years. Okay. And I was fascinated with the height limit. And I found out the real story behind the mm, height limit was that there was a 10-story hotel built in like the late 1800s, early 1900s or something that was horribly ugly. <laughs> and it was Egyptian architectural style. It still exists. And it was so ugly. Like it has nothing to do. That's what everybody thinks is has something to do with the monuments. But it was actually the reaction to this hotel and you could see it from everywhere. And it was so ugly. Then was when the height limit was determined. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it's funny, like now in academic circles, people talk about the architecture of power and sprawl. And okay. We're forced to go out because, but it's actually derived from. Oh, interesting. Is that like what made. happened in Portland? Sorry, what? Is that kind of like what happened in Portland? What happened in Portland? The pink. Oh, I don't know about this. What is that called, that building? You know, the one tallest building in Portland. The I giant don't know. pink skyscraper. That's oh, like, did, they, did they make a height? It's like by itself and there aren't any <laughs> other ones. We had a height limit. I think it was maybe... I thought it was maybe after the Columbia Tower went in and there was like a some sort of a pushback mm -hmm. or maybe it was before that and then it was released for the Columbia Tower. But like basically yeah. there's been that kind of movement in Seattle where we had we went tall and then everybody's like too tall. Yeah. yeah, Philadelphia until the late 80s, early 90s, you couldn't build taller than William Penn's hat. <laughs> William Penn's statue is a top city hall. Wow. And it was only like 20 stories or something. But yeah. like there was a huge controversy in the late 90s and they wanted to build towers. Yeah. And they had to fight for it forever. It's amazing 
people get passionate about certain things and then won't let go. Yeah, well, and, and I think clearly not a problem here. We're well, we're definitely going vertical fast. We are, and I, I feel like we there is a pendulum, and depending on what lens you look at the city, like that pendulum can swing back and forth in those mm-hmm. in those conversations. So if it's about density, people push back about that. We're growing too fast. If, if it's about right. height, sometimes people say no, it's too tall. Right. Or my car taps are too much or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah. I mean I, I feel like we do have that pendulum that swings, and mm-hmm. so finding a way to have a civil and civic dialogue that allows you right. to understand kind of the totality of it and yeah. measured march forward, I think sometimes helps us. But sure. I don't know, we're growing fast and we can't get away yeah, from it. Yeah, I mean, I've actually had to check myself. As a designer, I find building really exciting. And so I'm always a little biased towards let's make something new. If it's new, it will be better because we can design it. But it wasn't until I moved here and people cared so much about their community and people were so active here, so much more so than the East Coast, in my opinion. How does that translate? Like, what what do you see happening? Actually, so I had a friend of mine on the show once. He lived in New York City his entire adult life. And we were chatting about this, about changes in New York City. When people talk about change in New York City, they talk about it in terms of the past. They go, oh, my gosh, things have changed so much in the last 10 years. Here, whenever I've heard conversations about the change in the city, it's, did you hear about the changes they're planning? Can you believe Uh. that? It's a much more active, what can we do, Mm -hmm. rather than like, oh, man, did you just see what they did? Which I think is fascinating and unique. Mm -hmm. No, I think you're onto something. I I think New York also is largely, in some areas, built out. So if you live in a certain neighborhood that has, like, let's say Chelsea, Aside from the High Line, there's not a whole lot changing there. Like, I mean, at least I've gone back to see the neighborhood I used to live in, which was Chelsea. It doesn't have the same West Midtown change that's happening. And I'm sure those conversations are happening there. Of like, mm-hmm. are you, can you believe what they're doing next to this area right. next to the Pinecone? <laughs> the Pinecone. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I knew it had another nickname. I, I don't, I don't know. know its actual name. I, have you either. seen a picture of this, Rachel? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's this crazy. Up. It's like a concave cone, cone that goes up. It's a series of like stairs that just goes nowhere. It's an architectural oh, stair master. Yeah. 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 It, it has a real a name. name that I can't think of. And but there's no elevator. So like, it's just like a constant yeah. staircase. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's kind of a, like, and it's it's, like I think that's something for Seattle to be aware selfies. of. It's kind right. of like a harbinger of perhaps things to come. Well, but I mean, how much of that is that you are aware? Like, you can't complain about what's going to happen if there wasn't public awareness of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. is, I have no idea. I don't have any experience with New York, but is it that people are concerned with where we're going here because? We make a big effort to make sure we're bringing everybody in and telling them what we're planning and inviting public comments and all these things. Well, so my, my question on that one would be, I think in New York, it's such a big city, right? If the change isn't happening where you are, then it's like, are you going to track like deep Williamsburg or, you know, Bushwick <laughs> if you live in Manhattan? Like you mm-hmm, might. Yeah, yeah. There's so many people mm-hmm. in the six block radius around you mm-hmm. that sometimes any awareness after that just takes too much effort. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, I can barely focus on yeah. like what's happening on my block but, in New York. Yeah. But, but I also, I mean, when I I was living in New York, I, for my organization in Times Square, I served on the community board in Midtown Manhattan. So community board five, I sat on that and participated in those meetings. And there was a one-stop shop that if something was changing in community board five, every planning effort, every architectural project would come through that board. And if you were a citizen in that neighborhood, you could show up and listen. Right. And the city council member would come. Mm-hmm. Sometimes congressional people or staff would come. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the one-stop shop. What happens in Seattle, we've dissolved all that, so it doesn't exist. In Seattle, it's a little bit different. We don't have community boards, but we do have design review, and we mm-hmm. have community mm-hmm. councils, and we used to have district councils, and we have project-specific meetings. And so in Capitol Hill, when I moved back, I wanted to get engaged. Mm-hmm. There were like 20 meetings a month that I could go to to like look at different facets of our mm-hmm. neighborhood. And I feel like that's, while extremely good at reaching out, 
it's not really fair to the community because there's like this kind of burden of actually having to show up at all of that to understand every mm-hmm. little aspect. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of work we need to do in Seattle to really translate and build a framework around this change that like we can learn how to engage with it in a way that's productive and that we can be good citizens to understand it. And then we can have a, a real productive dialogue moving forward. And so it's not that I couldn't go to those 20 meetings, but I'm really pissed about this thing. So I'll go to this meeting and I'll show up and I'll try to stop it. That is, that is our policy. Yes, and, yes. That's and really, yeah. If you were pissed about like historic <laughs> preservation and you were on the community board, you had to listen to transportation. You had to listen to liquor licenses. You had to listen to like height discussions. And you became a citizen that like kind of like understood all the trade-offs. And mm-hmm. it's like, here, you can show up about, about your one thing at the one meeting and you can mm-hmm. wear the T-shirt and be really mad. And it's like, where is that dialogue? Where are we having that like that place? So people don't show up just to stop stuff, but they right. are engaging in, and they feel like they have a, an actual say in their neighborhood, right. which right yeah. now I think it's, I don't know. I don't feel like I have a say in Capitol Hill necessarily about what's going to happen. I, I try to show up and offer my sure. perspective, but like there's From not. my perspective, people have a huge say here. And I presented at one community board meeting in Manhattan. Which one? Oh, man. It was somewhere I was, I was really young. It's a long story. My boss got <laughs> sick. And he was just like, you're doing the presentation. And there was like 10,000 people in a theater. And that was the oh, community God. board meeting. And I was like, oh, okay. Lower, lower <laughs> and I was, it might have been my first presentation in my entire career. And it was on like a crappy laptop that broke. Horrible. But it was, it was actually about a proposed design for a new subway station. At the mm. time, the east side, is it the Black Line, the First Avenue subway, was still being Second planned. Avenue? And, Second Avenue. Thank yeah. you. God, it's been the too T-line. long. The T-Line. Yes. It was still being planned and built. And our client was an owner that could fall under eminent domain and get their building taken mm. away from them, which is a whole other subject. And actually, in a way, I think, created the culture of New York where you just look back instead of look forward because eminent domain is so powerful, but completely different subject. But that community board was just an exercise in throwing tomatoes. They had no real power, yet they needed to be presented all the information as a requirement. But they didn't listen to any of the input the community made. And the community mostly made not constructive feedback. So you're saying there was public testimony that was given at that meeting that wasn't considered by the board itself? Correct. Okay. In any real way. In mm-hmm. fact, all of the, the people sitting up there, somebody from transit, somebody from whoever's handling the eminent domain, they were all just sort of like sitting there waiting for it to be over. My experiences here at Design Review is that the comments that are made, if people show up, are taken really seriously, which was a pleasant surprise to me. But, but as long as they're within the criteria. So, right. like, you can't ask questions outside of the scope. And, in fact, a lot of times when I'm at Design Review meetings, yeah. that you're told that's not what we're talking oh, about. interesting. You, what kind you, we of don't get what doesn't fall under the— Well, we're not talking about parking today. We're not talking about <laughs> transportation <laughs> things. We're no, not that's talk, true. And, and yeah. it's like I don't—I mean, you know, I'm, I'm right. just as transit-focused as anybody else. Sure. But, but, like, I do think that, like, it's a partial conversation. And, and, mm-hmm. and the partial conversation that happens can be very valuable. But, like, there's people who show up because they are concerned about their neighborhood and then they're told that like their concerns about like half the stuff they care about aren't important in this meeting. And it's like, and I don't hold up the, the community boards as a great solution in New York. because I, I start. It was a start, but there were like boards of professionals at the city level who kind of considered stuff and the, the feedback kind of came in through these like community-based organizations that, mm-hmm. that kind of fed the feedback from the community to like a professional board that kind of translated it into like whatever was decided. And I, I don't know, maybe there's something here in Seattle that can eventually mm-hmm. evolve. I just feel like whatever it is, we don't have the framework for change. And if we want to grow and, and be that city, we have to find a way to like mm-hmm. to absorb it in a way that doesn't make people feel like they have to stop it. And mm-hmm. that, when you're talking about this, that divide between like urbanist and 
bucolic's the wrong word, but like, <laughs> but like you know, the, the, the 70s of Seattle where we, everybody got a, a single-family home within yeah. you know, a, short, a 20-minute drive of the other part of Seattle. Like that's just not where we live anymore. And so how do we ab- absorb that change yeah, in like a way the, that's meaningful? The unicorn of community engagement. And it's I feel like, well, I, I haven't attended more than maybe one of these community groups. And it was one that... The design review? It just disintegrated. It was in Ballard. They were screaming. It didn't endear me to the process at all. And one of those big challenges, like once you go so far down this path of it being that you show up because you're mad and you want to stop the thing rather than you show up to offer uh, a positive contribution or a suggestion for a change or even, even just nothing other than this is fantastic. I love this. Let's do it. You know, how do you get to that point where you shift that mindset from it being all about just showing up to say no? Well, if the first time you're showing up is at that meeting, like that's, we've already, yeah, we've, I was already, like, Whoa. we've already, we've I'm already, out. but if there was a process to like say, Hey, what should the next 30 years look like in my neighborhood? And you yeah. got to participate in that. And then things that came through kind of honored that conversation, then you'd you have need to that believe co- that your voice is actually being heard yeah. and that you don't have to enter the meeting from a defensive posture. Right. Exactly. And you'd see yourself in the stuff that was coming through. Another thing that we have is like some neighborhoods have design reviews, some neighborhoods have historic preservation boards. Mm-hmm. And if you think back to like Pioneer Square in the 70s, and so I always like to say Pioneer Square, Chinatown, those are beautiful neighborhoods that are not glass and steel. They're like, you know, funky brick and sure. interesting, mm-hmm. authentic uh, histories of Seattle and future of Seattle, really. We have preservation districts that were set up in 1975 that were protecting buildings that were 75 years old, right? And now we have buildings all over the city that are 75 years old, but no preservation for them. And, so, and not that I'm looking to preserve like weird stick frame you know, 60s buildings. But how do we have a preservation conversation that's not just divided into like six little districts that mm-hmm. we only think of as the historic quote unquote districts, yep. but we have a process that like is citywide mm-hmm. that everybody can play. And so when you're developing in Chinatown, it's the same rules you're playing by mm-hmm. that if you develop in Ballard or Capitol Hill. Yes, this is where actually Washington, D.C., I think, has an interesting precedent in that they started horse trading zoning for preservation. They uh, established a new rule in, because I worked for NDC for five years, Mm. called contextually relevant. (laughs) They would landmark certain buildings that aren't beautiful, but simply old as contextually relevant, and then essentially chain these buildings together in certain neighborhoods, and then give a developer an opportunity to combine lots, but they need to preserve all of the facades as contextually relevant. (laughs) And they would trade height in Washington, D.C., where that's at a premium mm-hmm. for preservation. Hmm. And it was wildly successful. And the preservation, by definition, in that situation was facade protection, but not like building an entire— From their perspective, yeah. yeah. And I know every city has a kind of different bent. In New York, it's what you can see from the street. And I think with them, you had to maintain the floor levels, so you couldn't change the scale yeah. inside. And I know from it is some so of the— so vague. It is. Like, if there's yeah. ever any statement more subjective— Than yeah. what you can see from the street, yeah. No, no, I mean contextually relevant. Oh, it, it's a kind of, in a way, kind of a brilliant sentence. <laughs> a brilliant phrase. I mean, maybe that's why it's popular, because yeah. it, you it's so vague and so subjective mm-hmm. that many different people with many different objectives— kind of make it apply to their situation right. in one way or another. Right. So you're going to build up a population of people that are now in support of this. So it's like you put a phrase like that in front of a preservation board in Seattle. Who's on that preservation board? Is it people who have an architectural background? Yeah. Is it not? 
Is mm-hmm. it people who have read the packet know. beforehand? Yeah. Some people have. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and so I ask. Is it the guy that's been living there his entire life and his opinion about what is contextually relevant to his immediate neighbor? Right. How much weight does that guy have? And so I you mean, look at some of these things that come out of that process and they have like, and I'll be kind, but like kind of a Frankenstein <laughs> version of what's around the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, that rock pattern was, you know, in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's why it's now used. contextually relevant. And it, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and so how do you how do you have a meaningful outcome? Right. Yeah. A Frankenstein is a perfect. But here, and, they, and those buildings do at the ground floor become Frankenstein's. But here's, in my opinion, the genius of it is that your building ends up being in the center of the block. And it's still managed in a way then that frontage blocks your view of the tower. Mm-hmm. So as an opposite example, I won't name certain buildings, certain buildings on Capitol Hill, <laughs> Pike Pine neighborhood, <laughs> preserved a facade. Mm-hmm. But then their facade starts directly behind that facade and goes straight up. Mm-hmm. So some of the visual language of the original building is preserved, but the feel mm-hmm. is not. Mm-hmm. You are replacing a four, you know, two-story building with a 10-story building. In this case, because of the setback and because of preserving the original facade and forcing the tower in the center, the feel from the street mm-hmm. is much more similar to the original context, right. which yeah. is fascinating to me. It is. No, it is. And there's an example of a group that's trying to do this in Denver. There's a really cute historic district that they bought up, and they're looking to invest in that historic district in exchange for getting some height behind it in a tower situation mm-hmm. and taking a parking garage and turning it into a large tower. Right. And I think that what you're saying, actually, the trade-off is worth it. Like, you basically, you get this, like, ground level experience, which is like really great. And these are authentic buildings with storefronts that you can walk into and feel like you're in this mm-hmm. slice of history of Denver. Mm. And then 100 feet back, you have a large tower that largely you're not going to pay attention to, especially at night when you're looking at both streetlights and stuff <laughs> right. and the twinkly lights in the trees and everything. You're not going to you're not going to notice that. Right. But if I going back to Rachel's point about Frankenstein buildings, if I take my mm-hmm. developer planner hat off and I put on a design hat, now I'm super concerned. Yeah, but who's regulating that? Because you could probably create a very beautiful instance of a, an old facade at you know street front and then some giant tower that's set back whatever amount. Mm-hmm. There are ways to execute that beautifully. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And of course, as these things go, there's many, many, many more ways to execute it very poorly. But where's the jurisdiction for who gets to say this is a good job That's or this is not a good question. job? You know, because once Should you these... meet the criteria that are yeah. that are imposed upon you by the city or the design review or whatever, like, then what? Can there be like a framework for citizens who don't speak architecture or planning to come in and tell their lived version of the neighborhood and what they have priorities for? Mm-hmm. And then to have people who are professionals translate that in a meaningful way into like what the advice yeah. is. Because I feel like what happens mm-hmm. now is it's like it, it like is a pinball machine between like architects and angry community members. And then what you get is that yeah, Frankenstein thing because you need like some sort of way to take that yeah. feedback and actually honor it in a way that like makes sense from a design perspective. And well, and understand because a lot of times the negative feedback that you might get from a community is not – it needs to be translated to how that applies to the built environment. Because mm-hmm. somebody might just be like, I hate this. It's terrible. It's awful. And not be able to necessarily say specifically, I hate it because – the exact form of the building is now casting a shadow on this pea patch over here. So somebody has to come in and and dissect what the reasoning behind the feelings, because I think a lot of people are just, you know, we're inherently able to present our emotions about why we don't like a thing, but it's a lot harder to really make a bullet point, nitty gritty explanation of exactly why this particular design Mm -hmm. 
doesn't meet what we need and how it could be potentially revised to make all those people super happy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can be really simple. My first instinct was to ask a question now I'm not going to ask because I feel like I figured out the answer is that should these people be elected people? And then I was like, nope, <laughs> because that, that turns it into even more yeah, of a like political you, you game, which le- just connects to the politics. money. So it just becomes a thing that can be bought. But then again, okay, should it be an architect? We had a discussion here about who should shape the future of cities. We used to have these events called night school. We had one specifically about this. And the culmination of the roundtable discussion, the only thing anybody could agree on was that nobody wanted architects deciding the future <laughs> of the city. <laughs> But well, I mean, that says a lot about architects and their exactly reputation publicly. Exactly my point. But I yep. think that— We are so directly connected with change slash bad. Well, architects yeah, and the whole change slash architect and the ego, it yep. doesn't help architects as a greater community. <laughs> but I think one of the problems that we come up against with all of this, too, is that at least here, we don't teach little kids to speak design language or to be able to describe these things. And so mm-hmm. architects become this— monster. Hmm. You know, I don't want to be like Blake and Statement, obviously, all architects are jailer because they're not. But no, the, the ones, awesome. but the ones that are cast a bigger shadow. Yeah. And yeah. so little kids don't know how to speak that language of explaining these things about designing mm-hmm. communities and buildings. And they could, you know, little kids building little cities with Legos or fully digitally or whatever, they have the capability to be able to understand and describe these things that they want to do. And then it's like somewhere in the education of when these kids become adults and get mad about what's happening in their neighborhoods, we drop the ball Mm -hmm. on helping people be able to be community members that can be engaged in a way that can actually bridge that communication gap between community members and the people that are pulling the strings of what actually happens. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, the vocabulary is super important. One other thing I think is also really important is People plan for what they can control or what their budget has and what mm-hmm. they what their realm is. And so when you're talking to an architect on a private project, they're talking about what that project has to produce for the client they have mm-hmm. or what the stated values are for what it does as a building in a community. But what I find is a very impenetrable wall between like what the public realm has to do and the private realm has mm-hmm. to do. And, and those things need to be considered in tandem, mm-hmm. but there's no mechanisms to do that. Yeah. And so when I talk to people who are excited about the public realm and, and advocating for all sorts of great investments on the city side, Bell Street Park's a perfect example. Beautiful, great. The edges, there's like two storefronts. Like it's not, <laughs> and, and it's like, how do we make that a vibrant space? What's the plan? And mm-hmm. it's like, you need to engage the property owners and figure out what they need and where those spaces make sense um, and how do we shape the private side of that so that it brings the action to the side of that public investment. I think there's like a wall between some of these decisions that are being made. How do you create a scenario where people that have the money and the people that are getting paid to do the job are responsive to their clients? Mm -hmm. So how do you create it so that the general public who are not paying for this project or paying for this design their opinion comes up to the level of the impact that the paying client has. Well, I mean, if you have these mechanisms for weighing in on projects, right? And if yeah. there's grand alignment in the community, that saves money, right? Like there's no fighting. There's no there's no <laughs> going right. back to okay, the, so it's a, the EDG <laughs> is not going to freak out. Like, you know, it, and so if you can build a neighborhood narrative, I know some people have been talking about 15th and what's the future of that. And I think mm-hmm. that's a very valuable conversation for a Safeway and a, a Kaiser because mm-hmm. they're going to invest half a billion dollars in that property. And if there's a plan, 
hell, they're going to plug right into it. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be really excited about what that neighborhood vision is so that they don't have to go and like scratch their heads and call people. And right. You yes. guys, Board and Vellum, other folks have done some of that work in, mm -hmm. in advance in the Merchants Association. I think finding that alignment helps. We were working on a project called the Pike Pine Renaissance, and we threw a bold statement out there about, hey, this should be a great street stretch and from the Pike Place market up to the freeway. We should think about that. And we threw out some design ideas. And then we had developed, surprisingly, we had developers, the convention center is one of them, and Greg Smith was another, like who said, that looks really cool. I'll play along. Like, what mm -hmm. kind of sidewalk designs are you doing? And you see the design sidewalks in front of the convention center are the exact ones that were in the renderings of that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't adopted by the city council or anything like that, but it was, you know, they had some discretion there and they're like, well, we'll play along with that. Mm -hmm. And so finding that alignment early on what like a streetscape needs to do, um, mm -hmm. we're still working on that Renaissance idea and we're actually engaging more of Capitol Hill now of trying to think about how do we connect the whole thing. Up. together. But I think that alignment is where you get that question answered is if the private side sees there's like a neighborhood vibe and they want to invest in that and they know that it will save them money from not fighting it. This is where business improvement districts come into play in a positive way. Businesses in the public discourse, for better or for worse, whether it's fair or not, are vilified in a way. It's like, oh, you're making money off of us. But in reality, at least when business improvement districts are created, there is money and resources and conversation being pulled together to create effects that are good for both the public and the business directly. Mm -hmm. I think it's a best case scenario. I know architects often feel caught in between because we have our own ethics to serve the public and at the same time, obviously, serve our clients' interests. And those don't always necessarily align. It's not a nefarious thing. It's just when a person builds a building, some of their goals are to, of course, make the community better and others are to make their investment pan out, which makes sense. But it's a strange space to inhabit in a way. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why we get cut out of the conversation sometimes. Well, <laughs> I, I would say there's a lot of like well-worn best practices in development or yeah. in property in real estate. And I think that sometimes it's about finding people who've broken a mold and asking them more questions and mm -hmm. then highlighting that because it's like, hey, maybe we can do something differently. An example of that is the struggle of how much retail do we need in a city like Seattle? Like, is there too much retail? Is there too much ground floor transparency? Yeah. Should we focus it a little bit tighter? What does it need to be? And then also like, what makes it successful? Is it valuable for a development? I think it's fascinating, the Borden Bellum project up at Roosevelt, they really made that a community space. It's an amenity space at the ground floor at the Lucille. Mm -hmm. Like you're integrating what is a community third space into what is an amenity also upstairs. Right. We did a study with the Downtown Seattle Association. We engaged a few property owners in downtown to show kind of some non-traditional reimagining of the ground floor. We talked to a few different property owners. One was the 8th and Olive building, which is where Mr. West is. Bottle House is a cafe. Okay, opening. yeah. And they mm -hmm. went in down there. They had a Wells Fargo and a lobby. And they basically said, hey, we could reposition this 70s building if we put in like Juicy Cafe and um, Mr. West. And now it's yeah. an all-day cafe that's packed all the time. I'm having breakfast there tomorrow. And, um, <laughs> and that whole vibe of that building has changed. And I think they've been able to realize some of that in the rent upstairs. 400 mm -hmm. Fairview, which is where the M bar is on the roof. Like right. now that building is being listed as an amenity for the buildings nearby when they are seeking <laughs> tenants. So like we're right next to 400 Fairview. That's a great thing. And one of the things that kill, my <laughs> extreme, killed a lot of neighborhoods in New York, I'm just going to say it, is that there are all these developments that are just ATM, Walgreens, yeah. ATM, CVS, mm -hmm. and just these giant neon glass panes. Mm -hmm. And there's, yeah. it's awful. The sidewalk experience is awful, let mm -hmm. alone the first floor experience. There are several buildings by a couple of great 
firms. I know Public is it Public Forty Seven does some great multifamily work, and there mm. are many others mm-hmm. where the first floor experience is thought about in an incredibly nuanced way. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of cities could learn from that. Actually, if you're thinking about a thirty-story building or a sixty-story building, mm-hmm. the way the ground floor makes you feel really drives the personality of the building. Like, mm-hmm. and so spaces that used to be for a large lobby to kind of show. This is a serious building. We have a serious lobby. There's a fireplace. You know, there's a, a large marble slab with That's all the names the of the company. You know, we have law firms in here. And, and you shouldn't you take us seriously and pay us money, a lot of money. I think now they're like... The fascist lobby of the 1980s. <laughs> totally. Giant, giant, giant marble, marble. reception with one security person behind a 20-foot desk. Yeah. Oh, totally. The wood panels. I used to work in 1201 Third uh, Avenue. It was exactly, you know, big marble and wood. But now the employees are like... I don't like the marble and wood. And so like they're repositioning all these lobbies and ground floors to try to do that. One building that was repositioned was Hudson Pacific building down in Pioneer Square where they put in at first in Jackson. They put in the Renee Erickson donut place in the General Porpoise. Yeah, they're great donuts. They, oh, my God. And they did the intermezzo carmine. They brought the carmines out to the front, and they, like, made that whole building repositioned as, like, a very, like, vibrant ground floor. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's just, like, how do we take those kind of – go back to your question about, like, you know, is there new tricks in real estate? I think there are, and we've got to highlight those and tell that story. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, we don't advance. And de-vilify development. Yeah. I had a political volunteer knock on my door one day. And we got into this conversation about rent control, which is great, but without going into detail, the narrative was these terrible developers are coming in here and they're going to change everything. And I was like, well, what are they doing? And like, well, they're building all these things, luxury things. And I'm like, what does that mean? And the more I probed, the more there was just like, it's a story mm-hmm. that is popular <laughs> and it's dramatic, mm-hmm. but not everybody trying to build a building is trying to ruin a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I think that hopefully we can change that idea. Right. I mean, <laughs> I always laugh when I hear like developers are like just looking to profit off Seattle. Right. It's like, yeah. we can't build housing fast enough. We need yeah. developers <laughs> like tomorrow, these yesterday. Like twirling village. Like, <laughs> I'm going to come in here and make this place horrible. No one <laughs> Everyone's like, no, no one's doing that. No, I mean, Seattle's a, a great place to live. And finally, yeah. everybody in the world has figured that out. And yeah. they're all coming here. And they're smart people. So companies are coming here. <laughs> and it's this virtual cycle that we are lucky. We are lucky mm-hmm. to have that. I was in Detroit last year. And it was such a different story. Oh, yeah. It was funny. It was right after the head tax mm-hmm. conversation we were going through. So there was a lot of political angst in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And I went there, and they are losing people still. But everybody I talked to, the CEO, the barista, the hotel worker, the, the cab driver, they were all like, this place is great. I'm here. We're going to rise again. This is an amazing city to be in. These are all the good things. Mm-hmm. you know. And, and it was just so interesting to see a city like full of energy and ready to like tackle that. And I come back here and the dialogue is definitely, like you're saying, it's broken. Like it's somehow the developers tricked us into building stuff. It's like, no, 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 we need that stuff. Yeah. Going back to what I was saying earlier, if we had the framework to talk about it differently yeah. and the language, like you mm-hmm. were saying earlier, like I think that we would be able to have a different conversation besides like stop it. And a way to <laughs> bridge the gap between the old timers and the newcomers. Yeah. Because the city isn't going to go anywhere. As a side conversation yeah. thing, I recommend to your listeners to go check out the Facebook page, like Vintage Seattle. Uh, like if you want to see the old Seattle concerned about the change like that page they'll post a Safeway at 160th in Aurora and say remember this one and there'll be 120 comments and I'm like about a Safeway on Aurora going back actually a few subjects about parking to everybody, you know, at all the community meetings, worries about parking. I used to think that was ridiculous. And then I moved into this neighborhood. And then you were like, oh, we don't have transit. No, but I, I, I moved into this neighborhood, kind of south central district below 90. And I live kind of bookended by two churches, mm-hmm. local churches. 
One is sort of a Japanese-American community mm -hmm. center, and the other is an African-American community center, and they're vibrant churches, and they're really, really busy on Sunday. And just now, tons of apartment buildings are going up, some of them even affordable housing, none building parking. Mm -hmm. And the only reason these two churches thrive is because everybody can drive to services and park their car on the street. And I started to understand the anxiety that something has to give. For the first time, really started to understand the the neighborhood anxiety surrounding it. Mm -hmm. well, and I don't I don't know what the answer is to that either. Well, once you have information like that, mm -hmm. and this is not the answer to this particular scenario, mm -hmm. but that's one of those things where you have a bunch of people that are like, no, 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 we can't do this. No, 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 it's terrible. And then the conversation could end right there, unless you're yeah. like, what you figured out here is that on one day of the week, mm -hmm. parking is a problem because all of these people are coming into this one location. I don't know. It opens up the possibility that there could be some sort of arrangement that is made. Okay, so the thing is, is that it's going to be a problem that there's now no street parking because people are living here and parking their cars on the street so that mm -hmm. people can't come in and go to church. The parking solution can be solved with some new built structure or some new land that is a designated parking lot. Like these people yeah, are parking on the street because there idea. isn't a parking lot. Rachel, you should, you should, should work there, for a... <laughs> you're oh. pretty good at this. <laughs> it's a pretty good suggestion. I mean... You know, like there's different ways to negotiate things. I mean, it's impossible no. to come to a solution if you don't actually know the gist of the real reason yeah. why people are against mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. Right. You and that's to... a community, a really strong community building problem there. That mm -hmm. is something you don't want to destroy. That is a community that exists. That's exactly the opposite of what we want to raise right. out. We want yeah. to keep that kind of thing. I live between two churches. I live between a Greek Orthodox church and a Russian Orthodox church just down the street here. Mm -hmm. And um, on Sundays... So good food. <laughs> they have the Greek yeah. festival in the spring yeah, and the Russian festival. Say, <laughs> Although I will say about the Russian festival, they got rid of Uncle Vanya's vodka hut, which is what they set up. And that, no. that is a miss. Like, I want that no. back. But, yeah. uh, there was these, Not the vodka hut. I know. That's <laughs> The vodka hut. And it was like all infused vodka because it was delicious. Oh, it was a great Saturday afternoon. And talking to old guys who grew up in the neighborhood and they told me about how this was a Russian area. And it was very interesting. Uh -huh. But like now there's a bunch of people who come to this church who've moved to the country in the last maybe two decades. And they all live on the east side. So they all drive over, like you're saying. Mm -hmm. And and it becomes a different country here. Like you have people parking on front lawns and, and on, yeah. the, on the parking strip. And it's uh -huh. like, and I remember just taking a picture of it because I was so amazed by this when I first moved into my house. People thought I was going to report them. They were like hiding their face. And I'm like, no, no, no. I just, I think this is amazing. I love it. This is like a cultural experience I'm having. And they were like, you're going to report us and write us up. I'm like, no, no, no. Anyways, but going back to your point, like things change and how do we come up? How do we respond to that as a, mm -hmm. as a neighborhood and as a city? What's the process? I think that's a question we haven't answered right. And in a constructive way. And, and if people are coming back that used to be able to park the street, yeah. now they live away. They're parking on the parking strips and sidewalks. If you don't know already that that is like a cultural artifact, it would be easy for people that just come in that don't know the history to be like, oh, my God, this is terrible. I can't believe these people are behaving this way. Like, right. blah, 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 blah. When, in fact, people that are coming here is like that gem of community that is what mm -hmm. makes these communities strong. And here we're going to just destroy it because people don't understand what's happening. And I would say that also happens with nightlife. Like you yeah. have a district that has been a place where it's a mm -hmm. third space for a, a few communities for a long time. And you come in and you build brand new towers. And how do we integrate yeah. that and protect some of what's special about certain neighborhoods when mm -hmm. I, I see it in Belltown. I see it, you know, a lot of nightlife there for many years. And then brand new towers come in and then there's like a lot of conflict there. Yeah. Like how do we, Pioneer Square is another example, Capitol Hill. Yeah. I live right on the edge of that. So yeah. there's all those things you lose, like how you used to be able to, do you remember being and how you used to be able to park across the street? There was an insider knowledge of this place that you could park and you wouldn't get towed, but only if you had the insider knowledge of what to leave on your dash. You know, and like those kind of things are 
beautiful and very much lost when you dilute for sure that kind of community understanding yeah, yeah. and there's sort of a it's funny we're almost out of time but there's so much i want to talk about about nightlife specifically Please. because there's kind of a a lot of big retailers and restaurants are closing up really successful ones all of the tom douglas via six restaurants closing mm-hmm. there was a matt Dillon closing a prominent restaurant on capitol hill there's a lot of conversation in the restaurant community that rents are too high and they either have to move or even successful restaurants closing. And there is a lack of small business space, space that is small enough that a first-time entrepreneur can afford to mm-hmm. open a business. Is downtown responding to that or is that just an ongoing concern? I think we have to understand the ecosystem and respond to it. I think things like Mr. West going into the bottom of the 8th and Olive building really do try to recruit and mm-hmm. and make sense for a business owner who has a specific situation and might attract office tenants coming in and, and being successful there. So we see a lot of partnerships between property owners. And South Lake Union is a great example of that. You see that with Amazon. They went and I think had a lot of like interesting conversations with successful business owners. Casco Antigua from Pioneer Square, Rachel Ginger Beer all went into Amazon buildings, which is really cool. They brought in Evergreen's local company. Mm-hmm. And, and so trying to like work with them saying, hey, we think you'd be successful here. Maybe I imagine there's some sort of like a pretty good rent situation where they kind mm-hmm. of like negotiate that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at a 60-story office building and you look, think about the retail rent, it's such an afterthought. You might be able to just not charge them. Interesting. And, and wow. Because if you can make that ground floor work, you'll get $2, $2, $3 upstairs per square foot rent increase. Mm-hmm. And that'll just decimate like whatever you were going to make on that. The challenge that we have, and you see this in New York, is that the loans for buildings the loans have strict requirements yep. and the federal mm-hmm. loan situation, I don't know if they think that way. Buildings like Skanska built 400 for everyone. I think they self-finance. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but I think they have some more flexibility. I don't know if everybody else has that kind of flexibility. So, yeah. so you have to be able to think outside the box financially and yeah. not to be able to do that. But going back to your point, we do need spaces that work for small businesses. And you see when they when you build new buildings on Capitol Hill, are we providing that space? Yeah, and for more than just the entrepreneurs, I think. For instance, there's a, a prominent space in the Pike Motor Works building. And I lived there briefly. That's right on Pine. Tons yeah. of traffic. It's been Why is it empty? empty since the beginning. Why? I can only imagine it's the rent. It's the only thing I can imagine. That is not good for the neighborhood or any of the adjacent businesses. Right, but is or that, their own tenants that are actually are in those spaces. Is there a thing if you charge less rent than what you said you would in your performa, are you like violating the terms of your loan? That's and possible. Sometimes, yes. Yeah, that's that very is possible. And so that, in the terms of your loan. So you and might so not you have the flexibility. you cannot accept somebody that really, really wants yeah. the space if you're not meeting the terms of your loan. It, it, you can write yeah. off the empty space as a loss yeah. in a way Oof. that you can't yeah. with the, which that's is sad. brutal yep. and terrible, terrible for a neighborhood. Terrible oh. for a neighborhood. And so just thinking about how we get around things like that, you know, is it reforming our finance laws? Is it? Maybe these are the kinds of things that community would help communities understand or get perspective. Yep. You know, in New York City, we think of it as like the Soho effect. Soho was this cultural, a nexus in the 70s and 80s, and now it's just a mall. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes when I go through, even, you know, lucky enough to be able to afford some of the shops on Capitol Hill now, when I go through there, I sometimes have this notion that that might happen there. And as I see, like, Blue Dot and, you know, fancy $500 shirt stores, and, you know, I'm just like, you <laughs> Those know. are great shirts, by the way. Uh, there are great yeah. shirts. I mean, I, I have to say, but, you just know. Really <laughs> honest branding. It's really great. <laughs> That's what it's called. The 500, you haven't been to the $500 shirt store? Great store. Yeah. Just like bring your credit card. But, so um, authentic. You know, no, it's actually it's New York. It's cash only. So. <laughs> but, you know, there's a concern. 
concerned that that's going to affect the culture. Yeah. I can only imagine that's a, a conversation that's happening downtown. It is. And you mentioned earlier, like restaurants are closing. Yeah. I think there's a natural ecosystem in restaurants. I mean, some of the ones you were referring to have been around for a decade. I mean, yeah. not every restaurant sticks around for multiple decades. Right. And these are folks who are still doing business in Seattle. I would say like just having worked with folks who run some of these restaurant and restaurant organizations, the business environment in Seattle has changed a lot in the last few years where the minimum wage, which we needed to do, and it's increasing. Mm-hmm. When you go into business and you make some decisions about how you're going to make money on this stuff, because it's ultimately you can't subsidize a business, you make some assumptions about what the costs are. And if the rent goes up and the cost of wages goes up and the cost of goods go up, and now you have to pay people for sick days. And it's not like we shouldn't be doing that, but basically you took the business model and you just broke it. And mm-hmm. so if you have an existing business, is it possible to climb out of that hole? Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah. when you go in on the next round, you have those assumptions baked baked in, but like it's hard to ask businesses in the course of four or five years to absorb all of that. And that's going back Especially to Especially a business like restaurants that aren't even planning on making a profit yep. for a serious number of years. Right. Start. It can tank yeah. them. And so I know that we've phased some of the stuff in and it's not that we shouldn't be having these conversations, but we should be thinking about like how do we bring existing folks along? Mm-hmm. And then I look at businesses like where I worked in the Chinatown neighborhood for five years and worked with small businesses there. And there was, you know, families that had owned businesses for three generations and the fourth generation doesn't want the business. And so what's our plan for that? Do, right. we, do we have a plan? We're going to be sad if it closes. Is there some sort of program or planning for dealing with like the pressures they're feeling from the market, but then also like... That would be amazing because that's one of those things that you hear that story all the time. At least it seems like I'm seeing it a lot in the press, I guess, about the next generation not wanting to take it over. And that's totally fair. I mean, those yeah, people... Same. I mean, yeah, I can imagine being in that position and being like, no, that's not for me. Yeah. But how cool would that be if there was some sort of organized program where you could find... I don't want to stick to the familial terms. But, but I you think know, that's but super like valid that a family that business shouldn't have to apply to the same rules that the next yeah, but what subway if the has family, to or the next. Nobody that yeah. is literally in the family wants to take it on, but somebody wants to keep it exactly as the oh, family right. business has existed, mm-hmm. but they are not a blood relative. Yeah. If there was a program that could find somebody that would be a great fit for it. Sure. Yeah. And be able to keep these There are all going. sorts of zoning accommodations for older buildings. Just yeah. like tapping in. Yeah. You know? Why are we grant? We could grandfather small businesses the same way we do older buildings. I, I think we're talking about different problems here. Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about there being some sort of recruiting service for people to take over family businesses where no one in the family wants to do it anymore. Interesting. And, and like a matchmaking for somebody that yeah. wants to no. come in. And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, is there some sort of Right now, we're thinking about how do can we provide some sort of like small business assistance to them? But if the yeah. person who owns it's seventy years old, yeah, like they want there's a time limit on that. Yeah, there's a time <laughs> limit on that, and their son lives in California or whatever it is. Yeah. And mm-hmm. if we think this business and this space is is sacred to the neighborhood, mm-hmm. like how do we right. transition how that do you into pass a, it on right to somebody else that will treat it the same way as would the son right. or daughter of that family? And we've done some really creative thinking around retail in the past. Like I keep going back to the Pike Place Market as a fascinating model. They own own their buildings and they only rent to first-time businesses. So if it's your first time having a business, you can apply for That's a space cool. there. I didn't know that. And so all of those spaces, even the first Starbucks, you know, <laughs> and all of that is down in the market. And what they have is this program. And so they can depress rents and raise rents. Mm-hmm. I believe they have that flexibility 
to like help people get started and be an incubator space. Yeah, really and it's cool. a PDA. So they make money, but it's like amortized over this whole big scheme. Could we do something like that across the city with retail so that you help restaurants get started? And maybe you like... Oh, you, that's really fascinating. I, I had love no it. idea. I mean, that that was how it worked. Think about if you took like all of the towers in downtown or like three blocks and you had a PDA that owned all those spaces and uh-huh. the board members were people who owned the building so that there was like consistent envision mm-hmm. going on. But then you were allowed to bring in an interesting and the whole goal was to program mm-hmm. this neighborhood to be interesting and active for the people who use it but also to also incubate small businesses. Could you create some sort of a program? And then maybe you depress the rents, but it's a tax write-off because it's a nonprofit. So what do you see as the barriers to implementing something like this? I just think our minds, like we have to, we just have to <laughs> think outside the box. Right. And, you know, honestly, I mean, the, the Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs is coming up with a PDA, I think, that's looking at like public art space. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's, we just haven't gone there yet, but I think it's the evolution of our public policy and our, and our mm-hmm. statement of value about what we value in our neighborhood. Right. And if we had more of that going on, would people feel less like things are changing. Yeah. Or leaving them behind Yeah, rather than changing but bringing them with them. So we are running out of time, but I want to ask you though, what is your ideal vision for the future of downtown? If you were just given control to change things the way you want to change them, and <laughs> enact all the things, watch out. you know, you know, you're put in power. Congratulations. The new anointed <laughs> king of downtown, Don Blake, he can do whatever he wants. What's your vision for the future of downtown? I just think it would be a place that you would want to live and work and you'd feel safe and you'd be able to get there real easy. It'd be beautiful and it would be interesting and it would be accessible to everybody who wants to be in Seattle. Mm -hmm. There'd be things to do if you want to spend money. There'd be things to do if you're free. There would be things to do at night at four in the morning. Mm -hmm. There'd be things to do at nine in the morning. You know, I, I feel like that's where I hope we get. I hope we get to like a 24-7 city that yes, has that would be amazing. options for people who work all night and get off and want to mm-hmm. experience the city too. I feel like growing up here, it was definitely a kind of 9 to 5 downtown. Mm-hmm. And I think growing up here, really moving to New York and seeing what that is, I don't think we need to be New York. I don't think we ever will be. But there is a synergy. And I, we were talking about this earlier before we started between New York and Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, West Seattle was first called New York Alki. <laughs> that was the first Yeah, the Statue of Liberty. Somebody yeah. once told me, like, I was new to the city, yeah. and I was meeting a friend there, and they were like, meet me by the Statue of Liberty. I was like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, really funny. No, really, where yeah. are we meeting? Yeah. And, and they just didn't respond. And I was like, what the heck? And there's a and statue. I walked around, yeah. like, near where, nearby, and I was like, oh, <laughs> there yeah, it is. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> and so I, I just think that, like, going back to this idea of where we could go, I think it, we could kind of become that vibrant, safe, and fun city that we could be. Yeah. And I think it's about finding that alignment and that vision amongst ourselves. Because right now, yeah. I feel like that civic dialogue is like key that, to unlocking that. That life, like that idea that 24 hours a day, there would be something. But the key to that is that you can get to it. Absolutely. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to get into like a whole other thing. We're trying to be like, what's your final thought? But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's but, your eight final thoughts also relevant? You, you know? But like, you can't have 24 hour stuff if it's an endeavor to get down there in the first place. Right, which like, is why I always ma- felt like an effort. Like, oh, are we going to go downtown? Oh, okay, okay. Let's get prepared. Like when I was a kid, it was like, okay, we're going to go downtown. We're going to leave at this time to get to this event at this time. And we have to park. And we have to figure all this out. It was like a thing that had to be planned. Yeah. It wasn't just like, yeah, whatever, go. But I mean, so <laughs> if there are 200,000 people living downtown... And you're one of those people. You can just walk to whatever you're talking about. Yeah, if you're living there, perfect. And and then if you're not, then you maybe can use a ride share or hopefully transportation. Mm -hmm. But I feel like giving you the options, right? Like these are the five ways I could do that. I could live downtown. I could Uber. Yeah, that's the key. I want five ways to do everything. Yeah. Yeah. I just want more options. That's all. That's That's a really good point. It really is. I like that. It's a perfect note to end on. Future of Seattle. All about the options. Yeah. (laughs) 
Lots of options, guys. Thank you very much for sitting down. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is delicious whiskey and (laughs) design goggles. Delicious whiskey and. (laughs) We're going to call those whiskey goggles. Those are whiskey goggles. I mean, yeah, no alcohol prominent in the production of design goggles. Thank you very much for listening. Check out Design Goggles Podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also, check out our blog on boardandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by Board and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks. <laughs>